There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. Welcome to the third episode on the subject of the Lord's Prayer as we continue our focus on this amazing combination of petitions and declarations that Jesus gave to the church. It's a gift that accomplishes two things. Number one, it provides the revelation of the proper approach to the Father in prayer. But number two, it also establishes biblical doctrine the major facets of the belief system that we should embrace as followers of Jesus. Once again, as I've mentioned in the previous two episodes on this subject, the Lord's Prayer is found in two locations, Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, and Luke chapter 11, verses 2 through 4. Now, Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13 was part of the Sermon on the Mount, and Luke 11, verses 2 through 4, was in response to a request by the disciples who said, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, in order to lay a good foundation for this session together, let's quote that prayer together. Even though I believe the Lord's Prayer was never intended to be quoted word for word repetitiously, it should be a framework of prayer, a suggested approach in which you can be very creative And I believe that's the way you should be approaching God, not in this repetitious kind of way that is almost mantra-like, but in a very heartfelt way. So let's say the prayer together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. There are 12 major points of doctrine revealed in those few verses. And I've covered the first nine on the previous two episodes. I'm not going to repeat them now. So we're only going to focus on the last three primary concepts that are contained within this genius prayer that Jesus gave us. Number 10 is lead us not into temptation. Number 11 is, but deliver us from evil. And number 12 is, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now let's go back and go into greater detail. The line where Jesus said, lead us not into temptation. What is temptation? I think we throw that word out quite often without really realizing what it means. Now, you could go to any dictionary, non-religious, secular dictionary, and it would tell you that temptation is the desire to do something, especially something wrong or unwise. Temptation is an inner longing to engage in short-term urges for enjoyment 
that threaten long-term goals in our lives. But in the context of religion and specifically biblical revelation, temptation is simply defined as the inclination to sin, the inclination or the desire to sin. Now, the Pope, the leader of the Catholic Church, recently changed the wording in English from lead us not into temptation, and I'm sure it was in that kind of structure in other languages too, and he made it convey something completely different. Instead, in English says, do not let us fall into temptation. Now, that's a completely different insight into what Jesus was saying, because lead us not into temptation implies that God is the one leading you into the trap, while do not let us fall into temptation means God is helping you avoid the trap. So I tend to agree with that rendering of the original Greek. I believe it's more in line with what Jesus was communicating. However, If we're going to use this as a comparison between the biblical revelation of truth as contrasted to other religions, we would be in a confused maze because temptation has to have standards that it's juxtaposed next to. The temptation comes up and lines up next to a law or a commandment, a standard, and tries to woo a believer away from that law, that commandment, that standard, in order to transgress. I embraced New Age spirituality 50 years ago, back in 1970, and New Agers don't have moral standards established by an inspired text. There is no central text that is recognized by everyone who embraces New Age spirituality as being the standard of their belief system. It's just a hodgepodge combination of all kinds of ideas from all kinds of sources, many different religions and many different spokespersons that aren't even representing religions. It's all subjective. It's all up to personal choice. What's temptation to one may not be considered temptation to another. To give an extreme example, of course, most people would agree on major things like murder, yet some who embrace New Age spirituality might also say that it's acceptable to abort a child, which I, as a Christian, believe is the murder of the unborn. No true Christian can agree with abortion. So there's a lot of latitude, and of course, Within the camp of New Agers, there are many who believe in same-sex marriage or who believe in the acceptability of a homosexual or a lesbian lifestyle, while the Bible does not allow that in the life of a Christian. Another example, a New Ager might think it's okay. It's totally okay to smoke pot, to get high on other hallucinogenic drugs. But a Christian would recoil from that if if that person is a true, devoted disciple. There's no room for that. And another religious example, a Muslim might think it's completely acceptable, according to the Quran, for him to have three or four wives. And yet, 
No Christian would believe that. Husband should be the husband of one wife. A wife should be married to one husband. It's a marriage between a man and a woman. We have certain standards. We have certain beliefs that measure what temptation would be to a Christian because it's any kind of variance from those standards. Now, many religions have texts that they consider sacred that present standards to them that would be different than what a Christian would accept. For instance, Janus believe in nonviolence very passionately. In fact, the symbol of Jainism is an open palm with the word ahimsa in the middle of the palm. And that word ahimsa means nonviolence because they believe it's wrong to do any kind of harm to any living thing, including insects. Now, that wouldn't bother a Christian. We have no mandate against such a thing. The doctrinal foundation of Christianity involves an expose of the nature of temptation from the very beginning of our holy book. Because in the first three chapters, we find a pristine paradise called Eden, and then we find temptation creeping into that perfect world, that absolutely perfect world and bringing chaos. And of course, was in the form of a serpent, which later on is identified as Satan in the book of Revelation. And Satan lures Adam and Eve into his net by tempting them. What was his temptation? He was saying, if you eat of this fruit that God has said you shall not eat of, you shall be as God, knowing good and evil. Now, what's amazing to me is that he was tempting them not with some horrible behavior. He wasn't tempting them with drunkenness. No such thing was known then. He wasn't tempting them with some kind of uh, horrible, immoral sin because they would have no concept of that. He tempted them with a spiritual or a religious goal that was actually God's goal for them, but he was trying to make them walk a wrong path to reach that end. See, God said in the beginning, let us make man in our image. So he wanted Adam and Eve to be as God. He wanted them to be like him, a reflection of his character. But Satan was twisting that sincere desire within Adam and Eve to carry them a wrong direction. And I believe that's what happens in a lot of religions. There are millions of of Jainists and Shintoists and Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims and people of various faiths that are so sincere in desiring a better life, a life that is in harmony with their conscience, a life that will lead them to oneness with God or ultimate reality or whatever they call it. They want something better. They're sincere about it. But the enemy takes advantage of that sincerity and then opens a door to something that is not correct by God's standards. Let me quote three verses out of the epistle of John that really itemize areas in which we are tempted, every one of us. He said in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15, 16, and 17, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. So the world is a breeding ground for temptation. And in the world, you have the lust of the flesh that's internal in each one of us. It's the lower nature that was passed on to us. That's part of the negative legacy that Adam passed down to his offspring is a lower nature that battles us constantly, the lust of the flesh. But the lust of the eyes is listed as the number two influence that tempts us. That's external influences, things we see that we desire, that we want, that are forbidden. And then the pride of life, that's the desire for greatness, the desire to be superior to others, which are contrary to the nature of God that he calls us to. And so those are three areas we need to consider. And you even see those reflected in a certain sense in the temptation Jesus went through in the wilderness. Now, that temptation is uh, recorded in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I don't care for the way that's worded in the English. I believe it's a wrong rendering because I don't believe God led him into the trap of temptation. I don't believe the Father led him into a pit that would lure him into darkness. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to seek the Father and to seek an understanding of his destiny, his purpose, to prepare him for his time of ministry. But that's where the enemy met him because that's where he was going to make strides forward supernaturally. And that's where the enemy meets you when you're making progress. And in Luke chapter 4, it words it differently, and I believe more correctly. It said, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. Now, how was he tempted? The devil said to Jesus, If you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. So he responded to temptation with something immovable, unchangeable, inalterable, and that is the everlasting word of God. It is written. Now that was the lust of the flesh that the devil was appealing to, his desire for food after 40 days of fasting. Then the devil took him up into a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said, all this authority I will give you in their glory for this has been delivered to me and I give it to whomsoever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship me, all will be yours. <laughs> That's the lust of the eye. He saw this display of all the kingdoms globally, probably those that had been in the past, those that were in the present, and maybe even a prophetic glimpse of the future. Who knows? But strangely, once again, that was something Jesus is ordained to receive anyway. He is Lord of the nations. He is the Lord of this world. 
but Satan was offering a corrupt path to achieve a goal that belonged to him anyway. And once again, that's exactly what false religions do. They offer all kinds of methodology, like chanting mantras or meditation or yogic principles in order to achieve a place called God consciousness. Well, God wants us to be consciously aware of his personal presence, but those methods do not take you to that goal. And then finally, Satan took him up to the pinnacle of the temple and said, if you are the son of God, then cast yourself down from this place. For it is written, now Satan's using his own response tactic against him. Satan starts quoting the word. So Satan knows the Bible. He said, it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And he was quoting out of Psalm 91. And Jesus answered and said to him, it has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And then he departed from him. Well, what was the devil appealing to then? Pride, religious pride. It was the pinnacle of the temple, and he would have a supernatural experience that he could pride himself in, that he floated down to the ground on the hands of angels, even though it wasn't the will of the Father for him to do that. So there you have it, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life evidenced right there in the temptation Jesus received in the wilderness. But I need to tell you very clearly, and this is a very important part of what I'm teaching, that temptation does not always come from the devil himself, because the devil, number one, is not omnipresent, and number two, he's not omniscient. And yes, he could be right there with Jesus, but he cannot be with every believer. There's over 2 billion believers in the world, about 2.5 billion last time I read. And he cannot, the devil cannot be with each one of them personally to tempt them, to lure them into his trap, to speak to them and to communicate with them. Otherwise, he would be omnipresent and omniscient. And those are characteristics that only belong to God. So the devil is not always the singular source of temptation, nor are demons the source of temptation always. We blame them on evil spirits, and I believe sometimes deliverance ministries carry it much further than God intended, because uh, a lot of what's attributed to demons is really just the lower nature. I believe in deliverance. I've cast out many devils in services that we've conducted, but I do believe many times people who get into that go too far with it. Because James chapter 1 verses 12 through 15 says, blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been tried, the King James says, or when he has been approved, the new King James says, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, because see, God doesn't lead you into temptation. He gives you the grace 
to avoid yielding to temptation. He gives you the power to rise above temptation. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted, listen now, when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. The King James Version says, when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. And that means mental death, emotional death, spiritual death, physical death, and ultimately the second death, which is the death of both the soul and the body eternally cut off from God. That's horrible. Temptation is not just something we should toy with and think, well, maybe I should avoid that. You should recoil from it in horror because death follows close on its heels. God said in his word, though, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, no temptation has taken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape. You need to be looking for that way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Second Peter 2.9 says, The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. The biggest difference in Christianity as opposed to many other religions is this expectation of divine intervention in overcoming temptations. By an internal transformative empowerment that God gives when you're born again, he creates a new spirit in you that is created in righteousness and true holiness that lifts you up to a place that is higher than the temptations that draw you, a place where you're stronger than what the enemy can lure you with. It's not just an external command, it's an internal empowerment that comes when you're filled with God's Spirit. Thank God for that. Now, the next line is, deliver us from evil. And some versions, including the one I quoted at the beginning of this episode, say evil one. There's been contention within the church and many teachers within the church for many centuries, all the way back to the early church, over whether or not that should be interpreted as deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one. I'm going to focus attention primarily on deliver us from evil. Do not allow us to be taken into the trap of temptation. Do not let us fall into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's what God does. God delivers, and he knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation, which leads me to believe that godly people do get tempted. Not just ungodly people, but godly people get tempted in various ways. You can be tempted toward anger, toward unforgiveness, toward allowing yourself to wallow in depression and fear. So it's not just always gross immorality, but you have divine empowerment. Now, New Agers and some Hindus ignore evil or in a sense declare its non-existence because of a belief in pantheism. Now, 
according to statistics, only about a little more than half Hindus of the Hindu faith, people who adhere to that worldview, believe in pantheism, which is a belief that the universe is an emanation of the Godhead so that everything is divine. Everything is spirit manifested in a temporary, illusory physical form. But it's all Maya, M-A-Y-A. It's illusion. And New Agers have drawn that from Hinduism. And so all the evil in this world is like an illusion. It's a temporary thing that's all going to be dissolved away in the end. So it shouldn't really occupy our minds that much. In fact, Shirley MacLaine, who is not so well known now, but back in the day, 40 years ago, she was quite a leader among New Agers. And she said, these words, she said, until mankind realizes that there is in truth no good and there is in truth no evil, there will be no peace. How do you get that idea? Because they believe in something called monism. Monism is the belief that everything is of one essential essence or substance. And that streams from the belief in pantheism, that the universe was emanated out of the Godhead, and therefore everything has a divine essence. You find a similar mindset in Taoism. The symbol of Taoism is the yin-yang, and that represents the idea that on the highest level, ultimate reality or the source of all things is both evil and good, both darkness and light. And so evil is mingled with righteousness. And the whole goal of Taoism is to learn how to find a balance between the two. Well, I'm not trying to balance darkness and light, and I'm not trying to balance evil and good in my life, in my nature, in my heart. I'm doing all I can to expel darkness. You and I are children of light if we embrace the biblical worldview. Darkness has no place in us. Most religions demand that adherents strive to overcome evil by their own human will. But the Bible says it is God who works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. And so God, once he comes into your heart, once you repent of your sin and receive Jesus as Lord of your life, comes into you with his character that gives you the impetus, it gives you the strength, it gives you the authority to overcome evil. And that's a very important thing. You should read 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. It says, the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. What is a stronghold? The next line says, pulling down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought unto the obedience of Christ. See, temptations have power over us when there's strongholds within us. And that's an established pattern of negative thinking that we are vulnerable in. And that could be many different areas. Some people are vulnerable to fear. Others vulnerable to the influence of depression. Others vulnerable to the lust of the flesh. And you and I have got to tear down those strongholds by establishing our minds in the truth, by reading the Word of God. Now, what about this, this 
discussion on whether or not we should pray, deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one. Well, many religions don't even acknowledge that Satan exists. And so they would desire deliverance from evil, but they sure wouldn't term it that way. Even Satanists don't believe that Satan is a conscious entity to be worshipped, which is very strange. A lot of people misinterpret what Satanists believe. They believe that Satan is a reservoir of power inside of each human to be tapped at will, which is a very curious belief system and, of course, a very corrupt belief system. Christianity, on the other hand, in Romans chapter 7, Paul said, I find a law that when evil is present with me, that when I delight to do the law, he said, I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. He said, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And so he's talking about deliverance from evil being overcoming the lower nature. He said, I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. And so that's definitely what we should be referencing. We, we can really reference it both ways. Deliver us from the evil one because he has an army of demons under him that may attack the global citizenry. Uh, I don't know how many millions of demons there are, but all around the world, there's demonic influence. And when you say deliver us from the evil one, you're talking about all his subordinate uh, dark powers that work in concert with his desire to subvert the world to his will. So that would be a proper way of praying it. I tend to pray deliver us from evil because evil comes from many sources, not just the devil and his demons. And God is certainly able to help you. But that whole statement is hinged on the final statement, number 12, that we've covered. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, link the two together. Deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That leads me to believe that we can only expect to be delivered from evil if we acknowledge that the kingdom is God's. So we're not building our own personal kingdom for our own personal benefit. And until we come to grips with that, we can't be delivered from evil. That's why almost every religious cult ends up contaminated with all kinds of corruption because they're building their own kingdom. We have to acknowledge that the kingdom is God's and the power is his, not our own. And whenever New Agers uh, practice Reiki healing, they think that power is their own. It's a divine essence that belongs to them because they are God expressed, God manifested. Well, that's a pathway to deception and destruction. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. And most importantly, yours is the glory forever. Amen. And that little word forever is important. In Buddhism, they teach your ultimate end is to cease to be. At death, your soul does not pass on to another body in reincarnation. There's five parts to you that disassemble at death. The word nirvana means blowing out like the blowing out of a candle, and it means cessation of personal existence. 
And yet, this last statement forever implies being part of a kingdom that lasts forever. Amen. I come into agreement with that. I come into agreement with that. Well, I hope these teachings on the Lord's Prayer have been a blessing to you. And I hope not only that, but they've been a strengthening influence to strengthen your resolve and to strengthen your commitment to the interpretation of God's Word that I've shared. God bless you. I look forward to our next time together. Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shreve's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.